You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. One of the reasons that we love the Psalms is because they give us clear and practical reminders of truth, even when we're in difficult and confusing circumstances. That's the reason why the Psalms are are worth memorizing and, and holding on to, not just even for yourself, but also for others. For example, if, if you were to get the sudden news that you have a brain tumor that requires emergency surgery, and if you were rushed to the operating room and your spouse or your friend or someone from your family was left in the, in the lobby area waiting, and if I were able to to show up there and be with them during their procedure, if I was able to pray with them, the first place that I'd want to go would be Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. We know Psalm 46. Psalm 46 tells us that we don't have to be afraid, come what may. We don't have to be afraid because God is a very present help in times of trouble. That, that's the truth we want to remember in the moment of crisis, right? That's the truth we want to know in the Psalms. Give us that. The Psalms give us that truth. The Psalms also give us voice to the whirlwind that can be our hearts at certain times. The the Psalms help us put, put our confusion into words. That's what we actually see in Psalm 10. In Psalm 10, listen to verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Wait a minute. You guys catch that? Psalm 46, verse 1, says that God is a very present help. In times of trouble. But here in Psalm 10, verse 1, the psalmist is asking God, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? So which is it? Is God present in trouble? Or is he distant in trouble? Is God near? Or is God far I think the answer to this question is the difference between reality and felt reality. This goes back to the categories that Pastor Joe introduced to us back in Psalm 3. Back in Psalm 3, if you remember, Pastor Joe explained that reality is what is actually happening, but felt reality is what is happening from our vantage point. It's your experience of reality. When it comes to reality, that's that's objective, true reality, God is a very present help in trouble. But when it comes to felt reality, when it comes to your experience, your vantage, sometimes it can feel like God is distant. 
And what exacerbates that felt reality in Psalm 10 is the prosperity of the wicked. That's the problem of this psalm. That's what the psalmist cannot make sense of. If God is really present, if God is really near, then how can the wicked live like he's not and live so well? If God is really present, then how can the wicked persist in their wickedness with no consequences? Those are the kind of questions that mess with us. And to, to add insult to injury or to, or to deepen the disconnect, in Psalm 10, the psalmist shows us how the wicked actually think. There are four quotations in this psalm of what the wicked are thinking and saying to themselves. And we don't find this anywhere else in the Bible. This is profound. Psalm 10 takes us into the actual thought life of the wicked and what we see there. What we see in the thought life of the wicked is bleak and unacceptable. The wicked think in a way that people ought not to think. So here's the key summary of Psalm 10. I'm going to put the problem in a sentence for you. Okay, This is what's going on in Psalm 10. It's that the felt reality of God's distance is intensified because the thinking of the wicked seems to be unchallenged. That's the main thing that we need to see first. But then, after we see that in Psalm 10, Psalm 10 closes by answering that wrong thinking. The the psalmist is going to dig in his heels in God's reality over and against his felt reality, and I want us to see that too. So there are two parts to the sermon. Part one is what the wicked think. All right, part one, what the wicked think. Part two is what God actually does. What the wicked think what God actually does. Let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we believe that the unfolding of your word gives light. And the light that we most need is your face shining upon us. And so we ask for that in these moments. Speak to us, Father. Accomplish all that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So part one is right here. Part one is what the wicked think. All right, look at the four quotations here. Four different times we see what the wicked are thinking in Psalm 10. First is verse 4. Look at verse 4. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Second is verse 6. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. Third is verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Fourth, verse 13. The wicked says in his heart, you will not call to account. Four quotations here from the thought life of the wicked, and they're connected to 
four topics more broadly. Okay? First, in verse 4, there's the, there's the topic of reality in general. Okay? Reality. Second, verse 6, there's control. Third, verse 11, there's compassion. And then fourth, verse 13, there's accountability. So, so reality, control, compassion, and accountability. We get to see here what the wicked think about these four things. Every single human being on this planet thinks something about God in relation to these four topics. We all do. We all have thoughts about God and these topics. Here we get to see what the wicked think. When it comes to reality, this is verse 4. This is the most straightforward, maybe. The wicked say there is no God. And this is like the linchpin topic for all the others. Because the wicked's general take on reality is that there's no God, then that explains why they think the way they do in everything else. So in verse 4, when it comes to control, of course the God who doesn't exist is not in control. And if God is not in control, then, then who is in control? And the answer is me. That's what the wicked think. I shall not be moved. I am my own captain. I control my destiny. I set my own standards. I get to be and do whatever I want to be and do because God doesn't exist. God isn't in control. I'm in control. So the wicked think. In verse 11, there's compassion. The wicked say that the God who doesn't exist also turns a blind eye to injustice. The wicked will crush the helpless and oppress the weak because they think God doesn't really care. He's got his back turned on the helpless. He's got his hands in his pockets. The wicked believe that, that the God who doesn't exist is absent-minded and disconnected from the hurting. Then there's verse 13, and accountability. The wicked believe that the God who doesn't exist will not call their wickedness to account. They, they do not believe that there will be any personal consequences for their actions, so they will continue to pursue the poor and devise their schemes and boast in their wealth and renounce God and curse and lie and murder the innocent and seize the poor and crush the helpless because they think God will not do anything about it. God will not stop them. Because God is not real, because God is not in control, because God is not concerned for the needy, and because God doesn't hold people accountable, this is why there are wicked things that happen in our world. If you want to know why wickedness exists in our world, if you want to know why there are people who do wicked things, it's because there are people who think like this. And it's really interesting here. Um, each of the four quotations in Psalm 10, th these four topics here, are all about God. This is, I mean, this is how the wicked are thinking about God. But in most of the descriptions of the wicked in Psalm 10, like everything between verse 3, 6, 11, and 13, all the descriptions of the wicked 
are about how they treat other people. This goes back to what we saw last week in that what we think about God impacts how we treat others. The, the, vertical, the vertical affects the horizontal. Wicked people oppress other people because they forget they are just people. They think that they are God. And this is a theme that we actually see all throughout the Bible. It's, it's, the, it's the theme of idolatry and injustice. When people get God wrong, idolatry, they will always treat people wrongly, injustice, right? Idolatry and injustice. Let's, let's talk about this for a minute, okay? When it comes to idolatry, one of the best definitions I've read is that idols are anything that offers transcendent beliefs while demanding ultimate allegiance. Anything that offers transcendent beliefs while demanding ultimate allegiance. Idolatry, idols, are anything that offers transcendent beliefs while demanding ultimate allegiance. Idolatry is when we take created things, things created as good, but we look for them to do more than their God-given purpose. Idolatry is when we basically make created things into gods, which then make us feel like gods. There's this book um, called Playing God by Andy Crouch, and he says in that book that every idol makes two promises. The first promise is you shall not surely die. The second promise is, you shall be like God. We've heard those two things before, right? This goes back to the Garden of Eden. These are the packaged lies of hasty, invincible power. Hasty, invincible power. And as humans, that kind of power is attractive to us. I know that about you. Every single one of us in this room, I know that about you. We like the idea of power. Think about it. If we had that kind of invincible power, we would be able to fulfill our deepest hopes. Whatever you want, you got it. If we had that kind of power, we would would be able to guard against our deepest fears. Whatever you don't want, stop it. Idols are the gods we make that make us feel like gods. The gods we make that make us feel like gods. And it happens on all kinds of different Levels. For example, consider greed and pornography. Both of these sins are about the empty promise of pleasure, right? Well, before they get to the empty promise of pleasure, there's the empty promise of power. 
Greed says that more and more money puts your happiness into your own hands. Just buy it. Greed says more money is power for boundless joy. Pornography says all your sensual longings will be fulfilled. Just click here. Pornography gives you the power to make gratification the result of every sexual desire. It's the promise of power that turns money into greed and sexual desire into pornography. It's the promise of power that takes good things and makes them into idols. And when those idols dig themselves into our hearts, that's when it leads to addiction. Addiction is our enslavement to our idols. It's when our idols demand a higher price than we were at first willing to pay, but now can't help but pay. Addiction is when our idols demand more and more while giving less and less until they demand everything and give nothing. Idols don't want worshipers. They want addicts. And every idol in your life is aiming for that. That's what it wants from you. It's all empty promises and lies. And when we fall for them, the reason we fall for them is because they make us forget that we are just people. They make us think that we are gods, that we create reality, that we are in control, that we answer to no one. And when we think that way, other people will get hurt. Anytime humans play God, other humans will be oppressed and abused. And the examples of this are ridiculous. They abound. Anywhere you see injustice in the world, it's always at some point connected back to idolatry. That's exactly what's happening in Psalm 10. The, the injustice of the wicked, the way they are unjustly treating others, comes from how the wicked think about God. But here's the thing. We can read these verses, and we can see how they think, and we know it's wrong. Right? Like if, we, you know, if this were to be put into, say, like a true or false quiz, like a pop quiz, we would knock this out of the park, okay? We're going to try this, okay? Quiz time. Question one, true or false? God doesn't exist. False. God is not in control. False. Question three, God doesn't care for the needy. False. Question four, God won't judge the wicked. False. Like we, we all know the right answers here. We will ace this quiz. But, 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 but get this. 
Psalm 10 isn't about rational atheism. It's about functional atheism. The the wicked are not making reasonable arguments that deny the existence of God. They are simply establishing, advancing, and operating within a kind of world as if God did not exist. And this is way more subtle and insidious than any rational argument. And this is how Satan works. We should expect that Satan is always more subtle and insidious than we first think. See, Satan, he doesn't really care if you believe that God exists or not. He doesn't care. Satan doesn't care whether or not you believe God exists. He just wants you to live like God doesn't exist. He wants you to function that way. And one of the most challenging issues of our day is that Godlessness has become part of our social imaginary. All right, so a social imaginary is, is, is basically the beliefs and values that a social group holds together that then influences the way they live. It's like a, it's th- think about it like a social imaginary is a society's default take on reality. It's like the thing that's just in the air of a culture. It's, it's, what, it's what we breathe in day in and day out, and, and oftentimes we don't even realize it. And if we were to think carefully about the social imaginary of 21st century mobile America, we would see that mainly, largely, it ignores God. Our social imaginary pretends as if God doesn't exist. Music, movies, entertainment. like So much of our world operates as if God did not exist. Our social imaginary, when we breathe that in, it's what makes us functional atheists. And a lot of times, we can't even tell. Like, we don't even know. We don't even know that we're living this way. Like, if, if you can walk outside your house on a sunny August morning, like we had a few days this past week, which were just glorious, right? If you can walk outside of your house in that sunshine with the birds singing and a breeze coming by, if you can walk outside in that and not thank God, you're a functional atheist. Like, if you can eat whole spoonfuls of Ben and Jerry's chocolate fudge brownie ice cream and not lift your hands in praise, you're a functional atheist, okay? Let's just be real, all right? If you can go about your entire day if you go out your, your entirety and you never acknowledge the presence of God, like if, you ne- if, it, if it never crosses your mind that the word of Jesus is what makes your heart beat, if you never think about God, you are a functional atheist. Psalm 14 tells us that the fool says in his heart, There is no God. 
Well, how much more of a fool is the person who lives each day never thinking about the God they say they believe in? I don't want to be a fool. Like, I, I do not want our church to be a church of fools. I, I, I want us to think about God every morning when we wake up. The first thought, I want it to be God. I want us to think about God. The last thought before we go to sleep at night is God. And I want us to think about him a thousand times in between. I want us to to see the glory of God everywhere. I want us to experience the, the, the presence of God in everything. Like I want us to know God and think about God and be consumed with God. I want us to have more of him. Because that is reality. See, everything else is make-believe. Everything else is make Everything else is how the wicked think. And we have to live in defiance to the thinking of the wicked. Right? God is most real. God is most real. And so I want us to live like that. Can we live? God, help us to live like you're real. That's what we see in the rest of Psalm 10. That's what's happening here in Psalm 10. We've seen what the wicked think. The the psalmist is struggling to feel God's nearness in his time of trouble. And he looks around at the wicked, sees how the wicked think, sees what the wicked do. And he wonders why their wrong thinking about God seems to be working for them. Well, part two of the psalm is when the psalmist confronts the thinking of the wicked by showing what God actually does. He's, he's, he's going he's to bear down here, what does God actually do? There's the, there's the thinking of the wicked, part one. This is part two. What does God actually do? The psalmist gives us four affirmations about God and his action in the world. And we should hear this as a dialogue between reality and felt reality. Okay? That's what's going on here. First, there's verse 14. The psalmist says, and you can almost just like hear the, t- I, can, I can hear him saying this. After everything he said, getting to verse 14, the psalmist says, but you do see. He's coming back, right? You do see, but you do see, for you note mischief and vexation. But you do see that that, that, that's the voice of reality that is confronting the way things appear. It can seem like God doesn't see. It can seem like God has turned his back on the needy, that God has turned his back on his people. The wicked certainly think that's true. That's what they think is going on. They think God has completely removed himself. He's checked out on what's happening in this world. But the psalmist is saying, I know, I know, I know, God, you see. You do see. You are aware. You are taking note here. Look at the second half of verse 14. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. So not only does God see, but God helps. God is compassionate to the needy. He draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. He binds up their wounds. 
Look at verse 15. The psalmist here is making this imprecatory petition. He says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Now back in verse 13, the wicked has said that God will not call them to account. But here the psalmist is asking God to do precisely that. And his boldness in this petition, the the imprecatory nature, the boldness of this petition is rooted in his assurance that God will do it. The psalmist knows that the God who does see and the God who does care is also the God who will hold every human accountable for their every action, every action, big or small, every sin, every idle word. God sees it. And he will call every human to give an account until there is nothing left for which an account could be given. Now look at verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Beyond seeing and caring and holding the wicked accountable, God will also do justice. And we kind of see all these combined. In verses 16 to 18. First, the psalmist knows that God does hear. God sees and he hears the desire of the afflicted and he strengthens them. God helps them. God leans in toward them. He inclines his ear toward them. Now why? To do justice for them. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. Now why? So that man who is of the earth may strike terror No more. So there are two things that stand out here, okay? First, notice how justice and accountability are combined together. Justice for the orphan and the oppressed is for holding the wicked accountable. It's do justice for the fatherless so that the wicked strike terror no more. You guys see that? This is different from how we might think. It, it, it might make more sense to stop the wickedness in order to care for the orphan. But here, it's care for the orphan in order to stop the wickedness. You guys see that? Notice this second. Stopping the wicked means shutting the wicked down in this life. I don't think verse 18 is talking about last judgment. I think the psalmist is talking about right now in this world. God stops the wicked from striking terror in this world now. Now again, how does God do that? How does God stop the wicked? By doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed. Psalm 10 verse 18 tells us that justice for the orphan 
stops the wicked from doing wicked things. And this truth in Psalm 10 changed my life. All right? So earlier this year, several months ago, when the pastors were trying to figure out who would preach what psalm in our psalm series this summer, I wanted to preach Psalm 10 mainly because of verse 18. Because a long time ago, maybe nine, ten years ago, I was at a Caribou Coffee in Minneapolis off Washington Ave and Fifth. And I was at this Caribou and I was reading Psalm 10. And in reading Psalm 10 on that particular day, I I received Psalm 10, I heard Psalm 10 as God's calling on my family to care for endangered children. Because I'm just reading the Bible, asking questions. So, so I'm doing. I'm just reading the Bible and I'm asking questions. And I, 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 the kids and I, we read this after dinner a few nights ago. And I asked them the same questions that I asked myself so many years ago. We were reading these verses in Psalm 10. Uh, we read verses 16 to 18, and I pointed out the logic to them. I said, God stops the wicked by helping the orphan. God stops the wicked by helping the orphan. And I asked, how does God help the orphan? And the kids said, by caring for them. I said, okay, yeah. how does God care for them? And the kids said, by bringing them into a home. And I said, yeah, whose home? And they said, our home. The homes of Christians. Which is right. God stops the wicked by doing justice for the fatherless. And he does justice through his people. God's action in the world is through means. He uses means. He uses people. And this is why our grasp of reality is so important. What is God's heart? What is his will? What is God doing in the world? There is no more relevant question we could ask about our own lives. The most important question we ask about our own lives is what is God doing? He works through his people. In fact, our lives are the evidence of God's work in the world. And I'm not, I'm not talking here about how we get to serve as a means of God's work. I'm talking about God's work in us. Let's talk about that. God's work in us. There, there are some amazing things the Bible says about our co-labor with God. In 2 Corinthians 5 and 6, Paul says that Christian ministry and especially evangelism is our working together with God. God makes his appeal to the world through his people. It's glorious. But before we get to be part of that action, we are the recipients of that action. Before God works through us to extend his rescue, we are the ones who are rescued. And that rescue is a decisive moment, a decisive action 
in history. So going back, remember the key summary of Psalm 10. The key problem, the summary of Psalm 10 is that the felt reality of God's distance is intensified because the thinking of the wicked seems to be unchallenged. That's what it seems like. But what does God actually do? Well, God is not distant. He's actually near. He's very near. He's so near, in fact, that he came here and he put on human flesh. Jesus lived in this world and walked on this dirt in our shoes and he overcame every temptation, even the temptation to hasty, invincible power. Wickedness was no longer unchallenged because Jesus confronted it head on. And in the most important point of his life, when Jesus was crucified, Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the wicked rulers and authorities of this world and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, exactly how did he triumph over them? saving you. (laughs) Jesus shut down the accuser of your soul by forgiving all of your sins. Jesus stripped our enemy of his power by nailing our debt to his cross. Jesus came here to destroy the works of the devil. Therefore, he saved you. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the course of this world, living in make-believe, which means we were dead and we were lost. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That is reality. That is God's action in the world. That is what Psalm 10 is pointing to. That's our hope. We live in the light of this reality. God has acted in the world. And we are the recipients of his action. Amen? We are. We are the recipients of his action. And he is at work even now. He is acting still today. And that's what brings us now to the table. Every week when we come to this table, we come to this bread and cup, we come as those who have been rescued by Jesus. We we eat the bread and we drink the cup. And as we eat and as we drink, we are testifying to God's action. We are saying, yes, Jesus died for me. Yes, I trust in him. Yes, Jesus is my only hope. I hope in his salvation. I hope in his blood. That is our testimony at this table. And this morning, if you would say that, if you would put your faith in Jesus, if you trust in him, we invite you to eat 
and drink with us. We're going to serve the bread first. We can hold it, and then we'll all eat it together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.